So let's give a great Vintage Pasadena welcome to Ted Chen. Thank you, Carla. Thank you so much. And how about a big hand for Carla and Alex and the great job they did hosting. That was awesome. Well, good morning, Vintage Pasadena. It is so great to be back with you again today. We've been hearing all the great things God has been doing here uh, through all of you, through Ben and Laura uh, at Vintage Santa Monica. We get regular updates. We have a monthly Vintage Network meeting where we get to hear all the great things God is doing at uh, all the different vintage locations, Santa Monica, Pasadena, and Malibu. And to give you an update on what's happening in Vintage Santa Monica, God's doing great things uh, there as well. We just had a, a wonderful Kingdom Come night where so many people heard from the Lord. Uh, we are establishing relationships with our partner churches uh, in communities, uh, in majority communities of color. And as Carla just mentioned, our missions outreach is going really well. It's wonderful to see uh, Pasadena and your church engaging homelessness as well. And by the way, Carla, 40X32 means 32 length, which is, I think, most guys' length, uh, length of their pants, our pants, right? 32, 34. Uh, and we've been serving dinner to those experiencing homelessness uh, at the Salvation Army every Thursday night. And the other night uh, really went through a great experience. And to give you a little context of that, I, um, I have a habit of losing Bibles a lot. I lose Bibles a lot, and then I replace them, and then I wind up finding them. So I wind up with a stack of Bibles constantly, uh, which mostly I leave in my car, thinking, okay, God's going to use that at some point. And sure enough, the other night, the Salvation Army, someone came up to me in line and said, hey, do you happen to have a Bible. And I said, yes, as a matter of fact. So I went to my car and got one of my Bibles and gave it to that person. And then another person saw that happening and said, hey, do you have another one I can have as well? And I said, yes, I do. And so I kept going back to my car over and over again because people kept noticing someone else who have a Bible and said, hey, can I have one? And I wound up getting uh, giving away all the Bibles in my car. And that was just a wonderful, a powerful moment. And it made me realize the power, the power of this book. I mean, it's unlike any other book. No other book has this kind of reach. The Bible is still the most widely circulated and printed book in the world. And, and, and people reach for it at the most difficult moments in their lives because they want to hear God speaking to them. And God speaks to us in, in a variety of ways, right? As Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. But he speaks to us very specifically and very personally in his word, in this book. And he speaks to us corporately as well. This is why we're gathered here today to worship and to hear his word and to, to hear from his book. And that's what the people of Nehemiah are doing in the passage we're going to look at today. To give you some context, we're continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about the people of God who have gathered to rebuild the holy city of Jerusalem uh, after it's been destroyed, after it's been torn down. So it's a lot about that rebuilding process and rebuilding the walls. But the people also need to spiritually rebuild. They've been in exile and they're just spiritually worn out so they need to come together around God's word 
so God can remind them who they are and who they are called to be. So let's hear from our own Laura Chase and Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 9. Hey, Vintage family, this is the reading for today from a very wet England. It's Nehemiah 8, 1 to 9. When the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the teacher of the law to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Israel the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and who, all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak to noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mathesiah, Sheman, Anakah, Uriah, Hilkah, and Mathesiah. And on his left were Padadai, Mishael, Makajai, Hashem, Hashbadanam, Zechariah, and Meshalam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. As he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord and the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. They bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebim, Jamin, Akabut, Shabbatham, Hado, Messina, Kaliet, Azariah, Josabad, Hannah, and Pathan instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping and listening to the words of the Lord. How about a hand for Laura for getting through those names? I thought getting through Thai and Russian names were tough as a newscaster, but biblical names are pretty tough as well. Uh, let's pray over God's word, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for these words from your book, from the book of the law of Moses. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that the Holy Spirit spoke through the writers of these books of the Bible to communicate your word to us about who we are, and most importantly, who he is. We ask that these words penetrate and, and enlighten our hearts and open our minds. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the law being referred to in this particular passage, the law of the book of Moses, is what's other known, uh, otherwise known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. It's what, it's what the people of God had up to that point in terms of God's word. Jesus hadn't arrived yet, but God was preparing his people for his arrival. And that's why in part they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and they were building up the city back up again because they had to protect God's people. They had to protect the Israelites from invaders because the Savior would come out of the Israelite nation. So it had to be protected. So even then, even at this earliest stage in the Bible, in the book, 
it was about Jesus. And when we hear people ask questions about the Old Testament, have trouble with the Old Testament, and, and all of us, I think, have struggled with different passages in the Old Testament because we read about the wars and the sacrifices and the terrible things uh, people do to each other, and we're like, what the heck is going on? But we have to remember, and those of you who are new to Christianity, it's so important to remember that everything in the Old Testament, everything about the Bible, ultimately points to Jesus. It ultimately points to the person who is going to save the world and restore humanity's relationship to God and redeem humanity. So it's important to know that. And that's why we can trust this book. We can trust the Bible. We can also trust the Bible because Jesus trusted the Bible. Jesus loved to quote from the book of the law of Moses. And he really liked to quote from what we know as the Ten Commandments. Now, everyone knows the Ten Commandments, and I bet most of us can recite most of them, but we don't often talk about why God gave the Ten Commandments. And the reason he gave the Ten Commandments is laid out in Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. And we're going to throw that up uh, on the screen here, and I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 5, verse 29, in which God talks about why he gave the book of the law, the law, as we call it, the Ten Commandments to his people. He said, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. God gave us his law because he wants our well-being. And he wants our well-being because we were made in his image. And because we were made in God's image, the law reflects the character of God. God is a God who does not bear false witness. He does not lie. He does not steal. He does not covet. And because we, all of us, each person in this room today, were made in his image, the law reflects what we were created to be, who we were designed to be. We were not designed to commit adultery. We were not designed to bear false witness, to covet certainly not designed to murder one another. So when we violate these commandments, when we violate this law, we're, we're not only violating God's law, we're violating ourselves. We're violating who we were created to be. Remember Romans 2 says, the law is written into our hearts. It's really part of our identity. So it breaks God's heart when people look at these commandments, when they look at God's laws, his rules, and they say, oh, it's just overly moralistic. It's overly strict. They look at something like no sex before marriage, and like, oh, that's outdated. You know, it just really doesn't apply to us now. It breaks God's heart because these laws are for our well-being. When I completely surrendered my life to Jesus about 11 years ago, I had become a Christian. I accepted Christ uh, just around college time, but I didn't really know what that meant. It didn't really click. I thought, well, I got a free pass. I can kind of live the way I want. And when that didn't go very well, and it was about 11 years ago, I finally surrendered. I said, my life is yours. And I, and I decided I was going to become celibate at that time. I, I really didn't know why, and it didn't sound very fun to me, but I knew God was the key to changing my life 
And part of that key was being obedient. So flash forward <laughs> 11 plus years of celibacy, and I can honestly say these last 11 years have been the best of my life. And that every year has had more joy and fulfillment and fun than the 20 years before that combined. By far. It's not even close. God brought me to an amazing church, an amazing body of Christ. I have brothers and sisters that surround me. I have great, great friends that surround me and love me, and, and I have a wonderful and fruitful work in ministry. And God has done amazing things in my life as a fruit of that obedience. It's changed my life. And as an added benefit, when I go to my annual physical and my doctor asks me, hey, do you want to get an STD test? I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. A little TMI, sorry, but it's to prove a point. Glad the kids aren't here. Uh, not only do I not have to worry about STDs, I don't have to worry about getting a woman pregnant who is not my wife. I don't have to worry about hurting someone or getting hurt by someone because we decided to give our bodies to each other but not our mind and our hearts and our souls in the total commitment of marriage. I mean, I still would love to get married someday. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to that day. But, you know, until then and past then, I'm going to keep obeying God because I know it's for my well-being. And by his incredible grace, my life is full. My life is very full, but that cup is no longer full. <laughs> no worries. He gave us the law so it might go well with us. He gave us the law so it might go well for our children forever. That's what the passage says. God's law is for all of us. And when we break it, when we violate it, we have a pretty miserable church and society. When you think about all the laws and all their totality. But when we follow it, and when we do it together, we have a pretty great church. Which is why unity... Unity is so important to God. In verse 1, in that Nehemiah passage, remember Laura said, God's people came together as one. They came together as one people. One body, but from different walks of life. Uh, Laura read a lot of names. A lot of names are being read in the book of Nehemiah because God loves names being read. He loves all of us as individuals. But there's incredible diversity. These names being read, they're priests, they're Levites, they're servants, they're ordinary citizens. And from the beginning, even before God in the book of Acts gave Peter that vision and expanded his people to include Gentiles as well as Jews, before even that, there were people of multiple ethnicities joining God's people. There were Egyptians who joined the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Rahab, the, the Canaanite, and Ruth, the Moabite, forsook the gods of their own ethnicities and decided to follow the one true God. 
And religions up to that point were largely uh, divided by ethnicity, and Christianity would become the first multi-ethnic religion. And what these people had in common is, is they were all stirred by the Spirit of God to come together as one, as we see in the book of Nehemiah. And God calls his people to unity, to one people throughout the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul appeals to his Christian brothers and sisters that there be no divisions among them, that they be perfectly united in mind and thought. Doesn't mean we can't have differences. Doesn't mean we can't disagree on some things. But it means that we agree on and we come together on the essentials. That salvation comes only through Jesus. That we worship him and him only. And that we're saved only by the grace of God. We come together on the essentials and we approach our differences and our disagreements in a loving and humble way. Which means we do not attack one another. Even when we disagree, we don't call each other's names, call each other names, we don't tear each other apart, we don't question each other's character, we don't accuse each other of following Satan or being duped by Satan. Because remember, in scripture, there was only one person who actually legitimately accused others of following or being duped by Satan, and that was Jesus. And there was one group of people who Ill illegitimately accused people of those things, of being duped by Satan, and that was the Pharisees. It doesn't mean we don't challenge each other in a loving way. It doesn't mean we don't lovingly confront one another when we have to. It doesn't mean we don't help each other see our blind spots. That's why we have friends, that's why we have family, because we can't see our own blind spots. That's why we have diversity in the body of Christ. We're not gonna get it all by ourselves in our broken state. That's why we need our brothers and sisters, both in the church and both also in different churches who think differently from us, who, who see different things to help us to see the big picture, to, to help us see things in the gospel that we don't. What did Jesus, though, ask us to do before we remove the speck in our brother's eye? He told us to remove the speck in our own eye first. He said in Matthew 7, remove the plank in your own eye first. So self-examination in humility is so, so important. I love what uh, Pastor Matt Chandler at the Village Church in Dallas said once, he said, We've all gotten very good at being experts at our own strengths and other people's weaknesses. Whereas Jesus has asked us to do the reverse. To be experts on our neighbor's strengths and our own weaknesses. To look for flaws in our own thinking. And that becomes especially important when we look at this book, when we gather together to look at this book, I just graduated from seminary and people have asked me what's the important, most important thing I've learned from seminary. And one of the most important things I learned was that throughout the history of the church, church leaders and all of us have had the tendency to read scripture through our own cultural lens, through whatever the hot topics were in society that particular day, 
And we're seeing a lot of that right now, right? Different interpretations of scripture based on what the hot topics of the day is. And we just have to be careful about bringing our own cultural and political interpretation to scripture. That's why it's important to, to, to carefully read the Bible, to see the big picture, to see what scholars are saying about passages that are difficult, that we have trouble with. And most importantly, again, to see the Bible as a whole, to see how it all ties together and what God is trying to show us. How he created humanity, how humanity broke away, and how he is restoring humanity through Jesus Christ. The big picture, once again, is about Jesus. And every time I read about Jesus praying for us in particular, it, it's always so moving. And this is one of Jesus' I thought most powerful prayers. It comes in John chapter 17, verse 21. And we have that. He says, he prays about his people that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wants the same unity that he and his father have. He wants the same unity among all of us and all of our brothers and sisters in the Christian church to have the same unity as he and his father, as the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all united as one, distinct but united as one. That's an astounding statement. And why? So that the world may believe you have sent me. So that the world believes that he is who he says he is. Because remember, Jesus made some crazy claims. He's the son of God. He's the light of the world. He's the king of kings. And he's saying here in this passage that the world is going to believe that by looking at us based on how we treat one another. In other words, when the church, when all of us are selfish, cliquish, gossipy, backstabbing, unsupportive of each other, tearing each other down, we're making Jesus look ugly to the world. But when we're loving one another, when we're forgiving one another, when we're sharing one another's burdens, when we're sharing our possessions, when we're laying down our lives for one another, we are making Jesus look beautiful to the world. I love how Tim Keller describes it. He says, the honor of Christ's name is bound to the quality of our community. And as we know too well, we've seen it in the past year and we've seen it in the past, it's also tied to our obedience individually. How well we obey this book. And here's the catch about that, right? We, we talked about Romans 2 and how the law is written in our hearts. We know the law is for our own good. We know the law is for our own well-being. But it just seems impossible to keep it, right, on our own power. 
I mean, maybe most of us can say, well, we keep the majority of the commandments most of the time. But the problem with that is James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you break one law, you break all the laws. You don't even get a curve. You don't even get credit for 90% right. I mean, what's up with that? And the thing is that God's commands and all these laws are interdependent. They all rely on one another. For example, the first set of laws are about honoring God, about putting God first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship idols. The last commandment is about thou shalt not covet. There's nothing wrong with wanting money or achievement or a relationship or sex. But when we make it ultimate, when we make it so if we don't have those things, that we're deeply, deeply unsatisfied, and we're just galled when we don't have those things, then we're putting those things first, right? We're not putting God first. So you can't violate one commandment without violating that other. And we can be a person that says, oh, we love God. We put God first. We go to church. You know, we read the Bible. But if we're mean and cruel to our brothers and sisters, if we neglect them, in need, if we're emotionally manipulative or abusive, we're not loving our neighbor. And if we're not loving our neighbor, we're not loving God, and we're not putting him first. Jesus said in Mark 12, the two most important commandments, the ones that tie all of them together, love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they're all interconnected. So do we see the predicament here? On the one hand, we can't live without the law. It's necessary for human flourishing. On the other hand, we can't seem to live with it. So what to do? That's why the people were weeping in Nehemiah. You see at the end of this passage, because they were looking at the law, they were seeing what was being read, they were hearing God speaking to them, and they were seeing how they fell short. And they were on their knees. And I'm on my knees regularly on how often I fall short, and it's often. But this passage also gives us hope. When we look at verse 9, verse 9, you remember Laura read, Nehemiah and Ezra said to the people, do not mourn or weep. They were weeping. But they said, you can stop weeping. For this day is holy to the Lord our God. I mean, not only had they regathered to rebuild Jerusalem, not only had they reassembled to hear the word of God in unity together, they knew because God was hinting from the very beginning that a Savior was coming, that a Savior would do the things that they could not do on their own power. And centuries later, when Jesus arrived. And he said in Matthew 5, I have come to fulfill the law. I have come in perfect obedience. And that's what he did. He lived a life of perfect, perfect obedience. He lived a life that we should all live. And he died the death that we deserve because of sin. Also that we could be transformed in his power. Also we could be renewed also that we could be transformed 
by faith in him, by his power, to live a life of flourishing and joy. That's the answer 